praise is yours alone, you're worthy, worthy of all. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and I appreciate you tuning in to listen to today's episode. As always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. What I want to share with you today are three of my favorite reads thus far in 2020. Two of the reads that I'm going to provide with you today are articles that you can download for free on our website at ChristianResearcher.com backslash articles. You'll find these in PDF format, and you can download them. The other one that we'll talk about first is part of a chapter in a book that you can obtain cheaply. So there's not a lot of investment in this. I really encourage you to go and download the articles and maybe pick up a copy of the book that we're going to talk about. I found these extremely helpful in my studies, and so I want to share them with you today to provoke you to some reading that it can be kind of brief in nature. This isn't a long, drawn-out reading challenge. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is a section of the introduction to Gordon J. Wenham's commentary on the book of Numbers. Wenham wrote the Numbers volume in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series back in the early 1980s. Uh, This volume has been published in several different formats, and you can pick up a used copy of an original format for probably like five or six bucks total off of Amazon if you're not concerned with your overall condition of the book. I think a brand new copy will run you somewhere around 15 bucks, so it's still not a major investment. Uh, there are many portions of this commentary that I believe are worthwhile reading, but the particular focus I want to talk about is found in the introduction, the kind of latter third of the introduction, where he has two sections entitled, uh, one, the first is Theology, and the second is the Christian Usage of the Book of Numbers. And this is material that I believe every Christian, whether young or old, should have to read. I think it gives you a good reason of why to study the Old Testament, some of the blessings and the benefit of things that we learn about God and about ourselves by studying the Old Testament. He does a superb job of capturing the relevancy and the practicality of some of the key concepts within the book of Numbers. I think that's something people struggle with. And I think this would be extremely helpful in building general Bible knowledge, but uh, Pentateuch knowledge in particular and the book of Numbers. So, with that in mind, I want to recommend the Theology and the Christian Uses section of Wenham's commentary, where he points out the major theme of the book of Numbers is faith and obedience. Now, typically we talk about faith and obedience from the New Testament perspective, but faith and obedience is the same in the Old Testament as well. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, and that has never been opposed to humble works of obedience. Okay, so that's a major, major theme that you get to see highlighted very well within the book of Numbers. The other thing that he argues for, kind of an introductory way, is that you have to view the Pentateuch as a single unit. In other words, if you're going to understand the book of Numbers, you have to understand it in light of Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus that came before it, and the book of Deuteronomy, which comes after it. The five books of Moses are a unit of material, and we need to understand them as a unit. 
so that we can understand some of the interlocking, interrelated themes, the progressive development of Revelation. Um, really important concept there. I think that's one of the reasons I think it's really important to read a survey of the Pentateuch to get that big picture view of the flow of the Pentateuch and then within that flow to understand the book of Numbers as Israel moves away from Sinai to Kadesh and then to the plains of Moab where they await the entrance which you find yourself at in the book of Deuteronomy. Wenham argues that there's basically three theological points of focus within the book of Numbers. First of all being the character of God, second of all the land promise, and then third the people of God. And I'll develop these just a little bit for you so you get a feel for where he's coming from and where he's going. When he talks about the character of God, he emphasizes the theme of holiness, which you've picked up upon extensively within the book of Leviticus. Again, you have to understand numbers in relation to Leviticus, and you have a continuation of that theme of holiness. In the New Testament, we don't have as developed of a view of holiness as you find in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. In the New Testament, the foundation that we find in Leviticus and Numbers is assumed, more or less, God must be understood as a God of holiness, and that comes through vibrantly and brilliantly within the Pentateuch, Leviticus, and Numbers in particular. Not only is God a holy God, he is also a very gracious God. Well, a lot of times when people think about the Old Covenant, they think of it as a burden, as a sense of oppression, as simply a curse that was placed upon the people, and that's a false view of the Old Testament. The covenant came with blessings and cursings, okay? If you keep the covenant, it was a great blessing. There's a reason why you would want to enter into covenant relationship with God. There's a reason why in Exodus chapter 19, the people are excited about entering into covenant relationship. The problem with the covenant was not the covenant itself or the old law. The problem was with the people. That's how the Hebrew writer would declare it in Hebrews chapter 8. And as a result of their rebellion and hard-heartedness, the curses of the covenant came upon them. But you must view the old law as a system of grace. Now people, because of Luther's influence, have often viewed the Old Testament as a system of law without any grace, and now the New Testament as a system of grace with no law, and that's a false dichotomy. Salvation has always been by grace through faith requiring humble works of obedience. From beginning to end, that's a major theme within the Bible. You see, developed within the books of Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in particular, and Deuteronomy as well, that the old law was a grace system. You had grace given through law. And many of the laws were given for the sake of underlining God's gracious nature. Okay? Not only is God a holy, law, holy God and a gracious God, he is also a constant or a consistent God. He's unchangeable. He's unmovable. He has a will, he has a purpose, and he is steady working, and he does not change. That's something to be highly prized and appreciated within the book of Numbers. Moving on, when we talk about the land promise and the, the major focus of the book of Numbers on the land promise, you have to understand the land, or the promised land of Canaan, as being the goal of the covenant people of God. That is part of the covenant blessing which God has promised them. It is a gift of holy God that he is promising to give them as a permanent possession. Now when we say permanent possession, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is going to further develop that concept of the permanency of the possession of the land. 
Israel is going to be deported in the Babylonian captivity. In other words, they're going to be exiled from the land that was promised to them as a possession because they failed to keep the covenant. So there was a conditional aspect of the covenant for keeping the land. Yet God is giving it to them as a blessing, and then the land blessing is going to be developed further within the church. I think about Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's verse 5, where he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall in- excuse me, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. That land concept comes up again in Hebrews chapter 4, as Abraham is looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. There's a rest that yet remaineth ahead in the book of Hebrews. So that that concept is really important to catch on to and see it develop throughout the Bible so that you don't wind up with a dispensational view and a false view of who God's people are. This takes us into a discussion of the people of God. The people of God in the book of Numbers must imitate or image their God. God has presented who he is in Exodus and Leviticus, and now he is expecting his people to be like him, and he's going to further develop laws along those lines. Israel must imitate their God both individually and corporately. Now, a couple of themes that are going to be highly stressed within the book are the keeping of the Sabbath and the concept of idolatry. Those are the two major sins of violation of Sabbath and idolatry that are addressed throughout, showing the necessity of Israel to recognize their covenant relationship with God. Also highlighted within the book is the unique role of the tribe of the Levites and the special blessings that they can bring or the curses that they can help the nation of Israel incur. In his section on Christian application, was really good, he stresses how 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and the book of Jude are all based off of an understanding of the book of Numbers. That ought to show some of the relevancy for understanding and studying the book of Numbers for Christians. Within the development of those three sections of the New Testament in particular, you have a stress on the typological nature of the book of Numbers. The, the salvation that Israel receives is typical of, his, of the church's salvation, the forgiveness that they received, the grace that was imparted to them, the possibility of apostasy that existed. The church has to understand itself as being in a wilderness state, traveling towards the promised land, just as Israel was in the Old Testament. If you do not have the possibility of apostasy present, you do not have typology between the church and Israel. Israel was the physical Israel of God, and the church, according to the book of Galatians, is spiritual Israel, the spiritual seed who God always had in mind. Uh, Romans will indicate that not all Israel were of Israel. There is continuity and discontinuity between the church and Old Testament Israel. Israel, spiritual Israel that is, is traveling through the wilderness, waiting to inherit the land that is promised as a covenant blessing to them. Really helpful material. I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy and learn to enjoy and love the book of Numbers. Moving on in our discussion, I want to talk about one of two articles that we've posted to our website. Again, these can be downloaded at christianresearcher.com backslash articles. The first is called The Law of Moses and the Christian, A Compromise, written by David A. Dorsey. You might ask yourself, Why is this a compromise? We don't believe in compromise. Why would we be advocating an article that argues for compromise? We have to understand the background of David Dorsey. He's writing from a reform background, and he is addressing primarily two different mindsets that 
that exists amongst Reformed people. That is the concept of dispensationalism and that of covenant theology. By the way, David Dorsey is neither. He is actually a a progressive covenantal guy, which looks for continuity and discontinuity. Basically, covenant theology is saying there's nothing but continuity between all the covenants, and dispensationalism is arguing there is only discontinuity that exists, and Dorsey progressive covenantalism is arguing there is both continuity and discontinuity between the covenants, though he avoids that specific type of terminology in his discussion, and maybe for good reason. The purpose of Dorsey's article is to discuss the Christian's relationship and obligation toward the Old Covenant law. This is a really heated discussion amongst denominational people and even difficult sometimes amongst the Lord's people. One of the really helpful things of Dorsey's article is that he highlights and outlines six major approaches to that people hold of the Christian's relationship to the Old Law. The first being Marcionism, the second being Dispensationalism, the third being Covenant Theology, the fourth being that of the Seventh-day Adventists, the fifth being Christian Reconstructionism or Theonomy, and the sixth being uh, the Worldwide Church of God. Marcionism is basically arguing that there is no purpose to the Christian studying the Old Testament whatsoever, just rip it out and throw it away. Dispensationalism is arguing that the Old Testament focuses on Israel, the New Testament focuses on the church, there is no continuity between the two, one day the church will be done away with, and it will all be back focusing on Israel, physical, ethnic Israel. A covenant theology is arguing for From a standpoint of continuity, there is continuity between all of God's covenants from beginning to end of the Bible. Within this argument for continuity, they come up with the tripartite division. In other words, they break down the old law into terms of civil, ceremonial, and moral law. This was popularized by John Calvin and has had a major impact in reform circles. We'll talk more about that here momentarily. Uh, Then you have number four, a Seventh-day Adventist, which is what I would call a consistent covenant theologian. What I mean by that is covenant theology says that the Sabbath day has been turned into the Lord's day, whereas the Seventh-day Adventist is being consistent, and they say you can't be changing the seventh day to the first day of the week. You just keep it the seventh day, so they are consistent covenant theologians. The fifth being Christian Reconstructionism, or theonomy. Uh, Theonomists argue that for both the keeping of moral and civic laws, whereas a covenant theologian argues just for the keeping of moral law. A theonomist is arguing keep moral and civic law. In other words, the civic laws that governed Israel as a political nation should govern all political identities around the world. I would point out a word of caution here. When Christians begin buying into the idea that they should be involved in government, they begin to buy into a form of theonomy. And theonomy is not a scriptural concept. The law given to Israel was given to Israel as a political, state-governed religion. And that is not where we are. God does not have a political state religion in mind in New Testament times. The last one, the Worldwide Church of God, argues basically that all of the Old Testament except the sacrificial regulations must be kept. In other words, they believe you have to keep the dietary laws, the Jewish feast days, basically everything but the sacrificial laws. His summation of these six major positions is well worth the read all by itself. It really helps clarify and introduce the general parameters of these six methodologies.
After he introduces these six methodologies, he goes on to show the difficulties of keeping the old law. And not just difficulties, the impossibility, I would argue. First of all, he, he points out that many of the laws have a geographic or climatic regulation to them. In other words, they could not possibly be kept in any region or climate other than the promised land of Israel or the Middle East, near, near East. Uh, second of all, he talks about the cultural regulations that are found within the old law. In other words, you have these laws that govern placing parapets upon your roof. We don't have those upon our roofs today because of a different culture. Uh, you have Old Testament laws which regulate slavery, polygamy, concubinage, uh, gleaning rights, uh, gleaning practices. Those are things that don't relate to us today. We're not a, a farming community by and large, and so many of those things have no application whatsoever and are an impossibility to keep. Number three, he argues that some of the re religious regulations were based on a Near Eastern world. In other words, they had to have wear ephods. Well, what's an ephod? Well, we don't know exactly today. Why? Because we don't wear them. We don't have that. It's not part of our culture, and it hasn't been regulated according to our law. Number four, there were laws that regulate particular political geographically designated nations. And those nations are outside of our jurisdiction. God is no longer concerned about a specific a geographic political entity. He is concerned about preaching the gospel to the entire world. Uh, he all, Dorsey also points out that there were many laws maintaining a cultic regime that has been discontinued. In other words, a lot of the Old Testament laws centered around tabernacle or temple worship. Since we no longer have the tabernacle or the temple, it is impossible for us to keep those laws. In other words, the Old Testament law was given to Israel, who is a geographically located, culturally influenced, political entity that had a special relationship with God, and that, that relationship was regulated through the Old Law. Having discussed the impossibilities of keeping most of the old law, he moves on to a discussion of the difficulties of the tripartite division. First of all, he argues correctly that that threefold division is not found within the Old Testament itself, and it's not how the biblical writers argue. That is a modern invention that is based on faulty hermeneutic principles. Second of all, he attacks the concept of a moral law. So most of these beginning with the covenant theologians, they argue we have to recognize moral laws and we have to keep the moral laws. Well, how are you going to determine what is a moral law? People can't, argue, can't agree on which parts consist of moral law. In other words, one covenant theologian will say the Sabbath day had no moral regulation and the Sabbatarian will say it had very much a moral regulation. There is no outline for what consists of moral laws. By the way, this is why I think it's important and how we talk, how we the terms that we use to describe things. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, it's moral law. And that's that can be very problematic because it has a lot of baggage connected with it. The question is not, does a particular law have a moral quality to it? The question is, can certain laws be determined without special revelation? So I would call it natural law. This is how the New Testament refers to these. There are certain laws that have always existed because they are baked into nation or baked uh, baked into nature or creation itself. They're based on the nature of God, and they can be discoverable through trial and error or wisdom, we might say, simply because they are based on God, and he has revealed them within nature. However, moral laws 
focus on a moral principle to a law, and that can become very problematic in discussion. If you have some questions about that, feel free to, to write me sometime. I'd love to share some material with you on natural and positive law. Dorsey's basic conclusion is that we must view the Old Testament as a unit, not as a law divided into three parts, but as one single unit of law that has been done away with. This is very helpful and practical material in regards to that concept. So the question naturally arises, what then is the Christian's relationship to the old law? And I appreciate Dorsey because he's not just punching holes at everybody else's theories. He's actually presenting biblical principles for why you should approach the old law. What has happened, I believe, many times is we have argued so hard against having to keep the old law that we are on danger on dangerous grounds of approaching Marcionism. Marcion said, you don't, you don't need the old law for any reason. It's, it's not our law. It's completely useless. Just tear it out of your Bible and throw it away. Whereas Paul would argue that what was written aforetime was written for our learning. Though it's not our law, it is for our learning. And so Dorsey gives four principles. He'll develop it more. That's why you need to read the article. But he says, you need to remind yourself that you're not bound by the old law. Number two, try to determine the original meaning, significance, and purpose of the law. I would add to that, understand that the foundation of all 613 laws was love God and love your neighbor. Each law that's given, no matter how obscure or seemingly pointless it was, it had something to do with loving your God, loving your neighbor. That was Jesus' assessment of things on many occasions. Number three, determine the theological significance of the law. And then number four, determine the principle that can be learned and applied under the New Testament period. Really helpful material. Pick up a copy. Uh, You can print it, download it, print it, read it digitally. The Law of Moses and the Christian, a Compromise by David Dorsey. Finally, I want to share with you an article. You can also find this, christianresearcher.com backslash articles, called Exodus and Biblical Theology, a Moving into the Neighborhood with a New Name. This was written by Stephen G. Dempster. This is a wonderful article and an introduction to biblical theology of the Exodus motif. Now, a few weeks ago, I did a special session on biblical theology. If you want to be Introduce this field, kind of dip your toe into the water without being fully submersed or overwhelmed. This is a great article. I want to just share a couple of the major highlights of what he's accomplishing in this article. Number one, he's showing how monumental of an event the Exodus was for both Israel as a nation and for understanding the Bible as a whole. Thus, you have the concept of biblical theology. You develop the concept of the Exodus within the Pentateuch and then see its far-reaching ramifications. The Exodus was the example of redemption in the Old Testament. From the moment it happened, Exodus 15, it was being set up as a type of future redemption, both in the nation of Israel and in the life of, and work of Christ. Major, major impact on the entire Bible. Number two, there are three areas of development that you need to consider the Exodus within. First of all, consider the Exodus within the Pentateuch. Then second of all, Dempster is uh, placing the Exodus event within the Tanakh arrangement. So if you've never dealt with the Tanakh arrangement, you will get introduced to that as well as you dip your toe in biblical theology. And then number three, he's broadening that context to the entire Bible and specifically emphasizing the concept of the new exodus as pointed out in the prophets and carried forth into the life of Christ and the life of the church all the way through the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. One of my favorite parts 
is uh, this his introduction to the New Exodus motif. If you've never done any reading about the New Exodus, this is not going to be exhaustive or exhausting, but it will be encouraging and really pique your interest in a major theme within the Bible, uh, particularly in regard to the Gospels. As he talks about the structure of the book of Exodus, he begins talking about the deliverance of God's people in the first 15 chapters, and he talks about the giving of the covenant, which is the central section. And in the last third, you have the presence of God, God coming to dwell with his people. Part of his discussion of the covenant has to do with his stance as a progressive covenantal theologian. He does not hold to covenant theology, as we discussed in our last article that we just talked about, in Dorsey's article. He is not a dispensationalist either. He is a progressive covenantal person. In other words, he sees both continuity and discontinuity between the covenants. This is very helpful. Number four, he has a good discussion of the name of God. Whenever God reveals that his name is Yahweh in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 through 8, that's actually quite a difficult passage that I've struggled with. He has some really helpful material, I think, and he shows how the name of God is unpackaged, if you will, throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. If you want to read some more on this name of God, his revelation of his name being Yahweh, you can also check out Alec Motcher's commentary on Exodus and Dwayne A. Garrett in his commentary on Exodus. I think they have some, some helpful material as well. One of the fifth things that he does is he shows parallelism with this Exodus motif. Uh, he shows how many of the stories within the Exodus scene uh, are based off of one another and are parallel, you might say, to one another further developing stories. It shows how uh, typology works within the book of Exodus, within the Pentateuch as a whole, within the Old Testament, and within the whole Bible. Typology is a major aspect of biblical interpretation, and the Exodus is key to understanding biblical typology. I'll share with you just a couple areas which were really interesting in this parallelism aspect. One being, uh, he shows the garden imagery that we pick up in the book of Genesis in Eden. Some of that garden imagery comes over into the tabernacle that has really interesting implications that are important to pick up on. Uh, he picks up on the golden calf scene, and he shows the connections with the sin of uh, Eve in the garden and uh, subsequent rebellions and sins that Israel in enters into. He shows that the golden calf scene, for one thing, is an inversion of the image of God concept that's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the ramifications that that has. Last thing I'd point out from this article I found really helpful was the footnotes. I should say in notes. I hate endnotes. I don't know if I've ever said that on this program, but I really hate endnotes. I like footnotes. Endnotes are a pain because you're reading on page 6 and you have to flip back to page 26 to find out where his reference are. But anyway, in his endnotes, there are some helpful things. He introduces at least five helpful authors and some things that they've written. He introduces you to Ricky E. Watts, who has done some uh, quite a bit of writing on the New Exodus theme in the New Testament and the Gospel of Mark in particular. He introduces you to G.K. Beale, who has done some excellent work on typological imagery within the tabernacle. He introduces you to R.W.L. Moberly, Christopher J.H. Wright, and then to some other articles and books that he has either authored or helped co-author, his name being Stephen Dempster. He was an Australian. If you haven't been introduced to him, he's, he's pretty helpful in the Old Testament because he is not a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian, though he is coming from a Reformed background. So, 
I hope that you will consider these three articles that we've shared today. Uh, again, you have a maximum of, I'd say, 10 bucks in finding th really helpful source material. Uh, the only one you have to pay for is Numbers by Gordon Wynnum. But go to our website, download these art articles, and happy reading. May God bless you in the study of his word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at christianresearcher at gmail.com. We'll be happy to try to uh, correspond with you regarding your study materials and your study habits. Thanks. Have a great day. God bless. Ever Almighty to say.